0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the Holiday
1: Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Tom Hanks has made a lot of holiday movies, Big, The Polar Express, but this season he's playing somebody from real life. And Gail King of CBS This Morning in an exclusive interview... Talk to him about it.
2: For over three decades, It's a beautiful day. In Fred Rogers was America's favorite neighbor.
3: Would you be mine?
2: Could you be mine? And now Tom Hanks is stepping into the shoes Hello, neighbor. of the beloved children's television host in a new film inspired by the man who touch the hearts of millions. I didn't know what to expect, Tom, when I walked in the theater. I knew it wasn't a biopic, but I think most people walking in will think that it's a biopic.
3: Like Fred Rogers from Cradle to Grave? Yes. And then a young man was born and he had a dream.
2: Yes. And then people say, well, okay, Fred Rogers, played by Tom Hanks, of course it is. But I think people should understand, this is truly, truly acting.
3: He had been this iconographic Johnny Carson did goofs on Fred Rogers. Eddie Murphy did goofs on Fred Rogers. His cadence and the sound of him became this kind of like signature of cluelessness or he 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 was that. a commodity in in this in this way. And as soon as as soon as you become that commodity that is known for this very specific sound and look, the sweaters and the blue sneakers and whatnot. Well, then it's like, how do you act as a can of Coca-Cola or a Frigidaire refrigerator? It just is a thing. And Fred, Fred was so specific about what he did on camera. He's stringing together words in, with a rhythm and a, in order to examine a theme very specifically. And that's what Fred did on every one of these programs. And because he spoke slowly and thoughtfully... It became this kind of, like, signature. Fame is a four-letter word, like tape or Zoom.
2: Did you know much about him? We would have been nine, Yeah,
3: I didn't pay any attention. It was this odd show that looked very cheesy. The puppets, their mouths didn't move and it was so obvious that he was doing all the different kinds of voices. And so I remember seeing it, uh, you know, when you're 13, 14 years old, and I was already saying, come on, cut, move to something else, make it a little snappier. It's not for nine-year-olds. It's for an impressionable mind that does not know how the world works at all. I'm proud of you. And I've certainly learned a lot by knowing you. Every person I talked to who said, oh, when you spoke to Fred, you felt felt like you were the only person in the world that mattered to him.
2: That's a gift, Tom.
3: It's a gift, but it's also a practice. We are trying to give the world positive ways of dealing with their feelings.
2: Hanks brought Mr. Rogers to life with a little help from the woman who knew him best, Joanne Rogers, his wife of 50 years. We're told Joanne Rogers lent you some of his ties. All of his ties. I don't know if that gives you an extra special feeling or if it meant something to you. Anytime you yes. could have
3: some sort of like, kind of like little talisman like that mm-hmm. in there, it ends up being special. That's a big deal.
2: But I read that you turned it down three times, this part.
3: Oh, I wouldn't say three times. That, Five times. Well, the way it works is Well, like, you've
2: turned it down before.
3: In the business of show, Gail, and yes. I'm so glad you asked me this question. Yeah. The business of show, there are these things that come out and say, hey, here is a hot property. Here is a screenplay that these guys have written off, and it's going to become something. And I read it when there was nobody attached. It was just essentially 120 pages of, of a screenplay. And there was no filmmaker attached. There was nothing. It's like you can control this if you want to. And I, when I read it, I said, "Okay, I get the Mister Rogers thing. I guess that's interesting." Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, this is about a guy going through, you know, a, a crisis that is can be very common amongst men: mm-hmm. father issues, mm-hmm. wife issues, baby mm-hmm. issues. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't. I didn't turn down something that was already the specific thing. I turned down this kind of. Quasi blank canvas, and it existed like that for a real long time.
2: But a chance meeting brought Hanks back to the story of Mr. Rogers.
4: Here we are. This is our first day on our neighborhood set. That's Tom Hanks right over there.
2: I love how you and the director meet, and how this how this collaboration came about. I met Mari at
3: a, at uh, the week that an article in the New York Times came out about women filmmakers, and I had read it and literally 24 hours before I went to his birthday party for my grandkids. And uh, I said, what are you, she says, I'm I'm a director. I said, oh, I just read this interesting article, the New York Times, about female directors. Have you seen it? And she looked at me, and she said, I'm in it. I said, (laughs) please, let me remove my shoe from my mouth. So I chatted with her there, and uh, I had heard about her film, Diary of a Teenage Girl, and I so immediately took a look at it, and said, "Uh, this lady's going places.
2: You said, I want to work with her.
3: When she attached herself to uh, this, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And after one read and and a a quick phone call with her, I said, this is only just a matter of when we can do it.
2: She said she did not want you to be an imitation of Fred Rogers.
3: Well, the conversation, okay, so let's start with the most obvious aspect, the look. Uh, Are we gonna do teeth? I don't have the same nose. Or what are we gonna, she said, you'll have a wig and we'll do something with your eyebrows. So the rest is about you embodying the pulse, the heartbeat, the sensibility uh, the motivations of why Fred Rogers, uh, commanded a room in the way that, the way that he mm-hmm. did. And I don't say you could probably say you could command the room, but it's funny, at, at WQED,
2: mm-hmm. the, we, studio. Which, the
3: studio yeah. in Pittsburgh, where we recreated the set, and everybody just coming by and said, oh, well, I haven't seen this since, yeah. you know, 1992 and or it whatever. it was done
2: to tee. It was it? Yeah. right down
3: to the door knocker. Yeah. Um, Uh, The people at at QED who had known Fred, who had worked with Fred, we we actually had his lighting uh, director was the guy sitting right there. So he did the TV series and he also did the movie. They all said that Fred, there was no question about when Fred was in the building, meaning that he was the boss. At the Mm -hmm. end of the day, he's kind of like Elvis walking in, you know. Mm -hmm. But Fred being in the building meant that there was going to be an attention paid to the process of making this very, very specific children's TV show. Mm-hmm. It was extremely thought out. There were, there were times when Fred had ri- I saw the scripts, you know, I saw had it written in his own hand, you know, on, on legal tablets in, in, the, uh, in the archives. There would be moments where he would come across and wonder if he was doing it right, if he was actually addressing the theme of that particular show, in which he would stop production and go off and talk to his advisors, his children's psychologists, his seminarians. Did playing this role change you? They all do, one way or another. Fred Rogers, uh, <laughs> we every day... On the call sheet, there was an attached quote of Fred's, and sometimes they were long, and sometimes they were very, very simple. One was, There are three, the three secrets of happiness are be kind, be kind, and be kind. And you think, Well, that's namby-pamby. That's goody-two-shoes. No matter what your bent is, being kind means you give everybody a fair shake. Mm -hmm. Being kind is, is just being open to a possibility of making a simple choice that makes the day a little bit better. We'll just take a minute and think about all the people who loved us into being.
2: It's very riveting where he says, think about the people that loved you into being. Oh yeah, yeah. Tom, I sat there and you could have heard a pin drop in the theater. Because I think we're all asking ourselves that question. And the answer is sometimes very sad, but it's also very exciting. I mean, it chokes me up thinking about th- that moment.
3: When we were doing it, I, I asked it- said?" <laughs>
2: you we really gonna do this? Because silence makes people uncomfortable.
3: Uh, And that silence in a movie is deadly. (laughs) I think one of the reasons why that is so uncomfortable, one, certainly, because it's very, very personal, because everybody goes to a very specific place individually. There is no, this is the bad thing that happened to me. This is not, I'm still bitter about this. It's a question about who made you the best version of yourself that you've ever been. And it is that lack of blame. It is that lack of cynicism that I think is almost it's scary in order to come across, because it's, it's not our default mode.
2: And I think maybe that's why I'm so excited for people to see it, because this movie seems to be coming out at a time when we need it most. Am I overthinking it here?
3: Well, I think it might be a, a comment on the yin and yang of where we are right now. I don't want to overuse the word cynicism, but there's, it seems to be the easiest way to make a buck and the easiest way to win an argument is to go right to this place of, you know,
5: the standard us
3: versus them dilemma. And uh, (laughs) uh, in Fred Rogers' neighborhood, there's no them. It's just us, you know? And when he says, hey, oh, I got an invitation to go to to a concert. Wanna come along? Come on, let's go. And you see that little toy city, it's like, let's go see the other people that inhabit our world that actually make our world a better place.
1: A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is in theaters now. This is the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. A Christmas Carol is a book that has never gone out of print, a book so beloved hardly a Christmas goes by without a new movie, a cartoon, a musical, or some variation of it. Lou Byard, the acclaimed historical novelist whose latest book is Courting Mr. Lincoln, had his first big breakthrough with a book that is something of a sequel to the Dickens, and unlike the many takeoffs on A Christmas Carol, went beyond it into the life of Tiny Tim as he grew up and became Mr. Timothy. We'll get to that in a moment. Lou, good to have you with us. Great to be here. It's it's interesting about A Christmas Carol. It has survived, I mean, all of Dickens' books have to some degree, but it has survived in a way that people relate to it in some personal
6: way that is quite, quite beyond most books. Why is that? That's a great question. I think... Two reasons. One, you know, it's just an amazing story. And as a result of that, so many parts of it have entered the language. The word Scrooge. You call somebody a Scrooge, everybody knows exactly exactly what you mean. But one of the wonderful things about Christmas Carol, it's popular everywhere in the world, in India, and in Middle East. It's popular in places where they don't actually celebrate Christmas. And I think one of the wonderful things about it is that it's, it's really a secular story of Christmas. It doesn't require anyone to profess a particular creed or follow a particular belief system. It really is just about accessing the better angels of your own nature. And that's a humanist message, and that's a message that everyone can get behind, regardless of where they worship. It's interesting because we have such mixed feelings these days. People look at
1: Scrooge as everything that can go wrong with somebody, and yet from, I don't know, J.R. Ewing in Dallas to (laughs) some of the very rich today who utter... Many of the same things Scrooge says about sure. the poor and helping crippled children. His point of view is actually popular with many people, even many people who will read or go to a film of a Christmas carol this time of year.
6: Popular, I mean, like the one about killing off the surplus population and stuff like that and getting rid of yes. poor people, yeah. Well, well I mean, you know, I, but of course, the, the important part of. Christmas Carol is the trajectory he makes. And, and I think you can't, you can't appreciate the story without following it all the way to its end because that's the whole point of the story is to see how even somebody has, unredeemable as Ebenezer Scrooge can be redeemed.
1: I guess we should get into Dickens at least briefly yeah. here because he's a mixed bag. He writes so beautifully about the importance of family, about holding the, the Cratchits, Tiny Tim's family up as an example of everything we should be in
6: terms of love of spouse and children. But he was something of a lout who abandoned his own <laughs> wife and children. He, well, yes, he did. He kind of cast off his wife after she had borne him. I don't know how many dozens of children, dozens of children, dozens. <laughs> um, yeah. And he and and had a mistress. And yes, he was not exactly a Mr family values. But I think the Cratchits are his ideal of how a family should be. I don't think it's necessarily a representation of his own life, but how he felt families should relate to each other. It's significant, I think, that they live in Camden Town, which is where uh, Dickens grew up with his own family. It's a, a then a pr- pretty poor suburb of, of London. But I think he wanted to believe... I think that's the, that's the key thing. This is, this is the kind of family he, he wanted to believe in. He was also, I should say, passionately concerned about children in general and about uh, children in poverty. The Christmas Carol was partly inspired by an 1843 government report on child safety in the mines, child labor laws that were being regularly flouted. So if you read the book, if you actually read the original story, it's, it's, it's really quite passionate about what children were up against in Victorian England. Well, very much our concept of childhood, uh, attacking the idea that children are to be
1: sent off to the workhouses. Yeah, uh, the way that we look at childhood very much is from Dickens.
6: The, the The hopeful side of childhood you're talking about, I mean, yes, 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 and the, the, and the, the, the fact that
1: children should have a childhood. You know, yes, I know. Necessarily be and that was you're
6: somewhere. right, and that was still a, reth- a kind of unusual concept in those days because at some point, particularly if you were in a poor working class family, you you just had to go to work. There wasn't there wasn't time for you to have play. There wasn't time even for an education. You just had to get a job and help support your family. So that's a, partly a function of the economic circumstances in which they grew up in. London was half children in those days, and many of them were just roaming untenanted with no families and, and struggling to survive, and that's what Dickens would have seen firsthand.
1: Well, then let's get into your book, Mr. Timothy, because it's it's interesting. What was there that drew you to the idea of Tiny Tim as somebody that we wanted pers- uh, to pursue? Because in in a way, in A Christmas Carol, he is kind of the image of pure innocence.
6: Absolutely. And that's probably why I didn't like him <laughs> growing up. Yeah, he was I've always loved Dickens. Dickens was my favorite author growing up, but I never liked Tiny Tim and I think it's because I just didn't believe in him. I didn't think it, a kid in, in his circumstances would behave as nobly and purely and uh, admirably as as Tiny Tim did. But I can see now that Dickens needed him to be that way to create this sort of moral center, the moral anchor for this myth that he was telling. But I just started thinking, maybe there was something Dickens didn't tell us about this kid and how do we figure out what that was and so mr timothy he's grown up he's alive he's he doesn't have a um, a crutch anymore i t- took away all the sort of easy points of sentiment and then put him in the victorian underworld he's in the he's living in a brothel and teaching the madam how to read and he's at night he's trilling the um, the thames river for for dead bodies with his friend gully uh, to get their pocket change and and get the inquest fee. So he's living right on kind of the edge of the Victorian underworld. And in the process, he comes across some dead girls in the streets and becomes their self-appointed protector and learns about himself and who he really is, you know, apart from all the things that Dickens wanted us to believe.
1: One of the interesting things about that, besides the fact that there's there's a great plot and a lot of payoff in the book, is that at the end of A Christmas Carol, we kind of get this view through the redemption of one man, Ebenezer Screw, that maybe there's this great hope. And one of the things that we get from your book is, yeah, but you know, London was still London, <laughs> and children still had an impossible time of it, and a, a kid like, like Tiny Tim who – who is so perfect in the book? Coming up against the reality of life in in London as a grown up would really be up against it because kids still were, and especially the poor.
6: Yes, absolutely. There really was no safety net in those days. There were their private charities. Those two gentlemen who try to hit up Scrooge early in the story, early in the Christmas Carol, are examples of that. You know, trying to appeal to people's sense of charity and goodwill. But but they were uh, a lot of these 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 families and these children were. Essentially abandoned to their own devices, and and a lot of them didn't survive. And in my telling of the the sequel, you know, a lot of the, some of the Cratchits don't survive. So it's no but it, nobody is safe. And of course, you had the disease, and you had rampant epidemics. So it was it was a tough time to be alive, and uh, a tough time to to survive, or let alone thrive in.
1: There are some throwaway lines about religion. Very few, as you point out, in a Christmas Carol. So what do we know about Dickens? I mean from what I know he was kind of a New Testament guy, but from what you you know we know of his personal life he also wasn't religious religious. So how did he mean this just as a story of a story of you know redemption, which I guess would be a more religious view of it or a more secular thing about the about the lives that people were were living in london, what was what was the impetus for this, do you think?
6: I think it was just a sense of the injustice that was going on around him. He saw, as I said, he looked around and saw all this poverty, saw all this suffering, and saw people who were turning a blind eye to it, and that enraged him, and the Christmas Carol was written in I think about six weeks. It was written in really a heat of of inspiration, but also in a kind of rage. And again and again, he comes back to the suffering of children, to the to the starvation and, and want and hunger and crime. And and that really was, I think, his, pre, his predominant theme in taking this up, much more than um, a, a specifically religious or church-oriented theme.
1: It is interesting that this story about how uh, money isn't as important, and he he brings this up several times in A Christmas Carol as you know, love the spirit of the seasons and mm-hmm. and all of that. One one of the ghosts just really rips into him for thinking that that you know commerce is the important thing rather than taking care of your fellow man. But ironically, A Christmas Carol really becomes his kind of pension. He writes it in that hurry because Martin Chuzzlewit, which is a great book, but it kind of flopped when it first came right. out and he needed money and then after that he spends much of the rest of his life in between writing an enormous amount of material going around performing a a form of of a christmas carol to audiences and the the ticket sales for that as well as the sales of the book made sure that you know he would never be poor again
6: oh for sure yeah and he was a famous a reader of his own work it's highly dramatic and uh, he had a renowned um, oral audiobook version, in effect, of Christmas Carol that he took everywhere. He took it to America. And but it did have an economic motive. You're right because um, the copyright system was not very airtight in those days, and all his stuff, all his work, was pirated in the United States. So the only way he could get any of that money back was to go on the road and and read it out loud for the entertainment of folks. So, um, but because he was such a terrific reader of his own work, and really a frustrated actor, uh, amateur actor himself, um, he he really took to that theatrical vein. And, there were, and the books themselves are wonderfully theatrical. There's a reason they dramatize so beautifully. I think it's because he did think in terms of, of scenes and drama and melo, at times melodrama and keeping people excited.
1: Lou Bayard had extended the story of A Christmas Carol into his own novel, one of my favorites called Mr. Timothy. His latest book is Courting Mr. Lincoln. Lou, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. This has been fun. You're listening to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. A once somewhat obscure celebration has become such a big deal, Adam Sandler has even made an animated film and song about it.
0: Paul Newman's half Jewish and Goldie Hawn's half too. Put them together, what a
7: fine-looking Jew! <laughs>
1: Until Sandler took up the cause, there weren't many popular songs about Hanukkah. There was, of course, this. Play.
4: Oh, dreidel, dreidel, dreidel,
1: I made it Yeah, but that dreidel song never crossed over into the larger culture. Jewish songwriters always wrote much better songs about Christmas, like White Christmas, the Christmas song, you know, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Santa Baby, Silver Bells, and many more. There was this song by Don McLean that also mentioned Dreidels. I
8: feel like a spinning top or a dreidel. The spinning don't stop when you
1: leave. That's a great cradle, song, but Dreidels just, just got into it because McLean cleverly found a rhyme for cradle. One of those words that don't completely rhyme with anything, like orange. So cool, but not a Hanukkah song. Of course, you could do what the acapella group 613 did, which was to take some other song and make it about Hanukkah.
6: Escape from great tyranny,
9: kindle the lights, remember the me
1: The closest anyone has come other than Adam Sandler to an original song was this by Tom Lehrer.
6: I'm spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica. Wearing
1: sandals, lighting candles by the Great, but again, not strictly about the holiday. In fact, the closest thing we get to a great piece of music about the day is not technically about Hanukkah, but its origins. The story of Judas Maccabeus in an oratorio by George Friedrich Handel, written back in 1747 and an enormous hit, despite it having an entirely Jewish theme for a very Christian audience. And here's where the origins of Hanukkah do get interesting. It's based on a story not told in the Old Testament at all, in the Jewish Talmud only briefly, but mainly in 1st and 2nd Maccabees, books held as canonical scripture by the Catholic Church, but not by Protestants nor any branch of Judaism. So how did it become such a big deal? Well, for most of Jewish history, it wasn't. It is not even a Jewish holy day. There are no Hanukkah services at a synagogue. In fact, outside the United States, it's still no big deal. No presents, parties, or Adam Sandler songs. All people did for hundreds of years was to light candles in a menorah. Why? Well, let's start with history, if we can call it that. In 175 BCE, Israel was part of an empire ruled by a Syrian Greek king. Now, in First Maccabees, the story goes, the Maccabean rebels took back the Jewish temple from the Syrian Greek Empire. Trouble is, in 2 Maccabees, a totally different story is told, in which the Maccabees attack other Jews who were attracted to the Greek culture. Which story is true? Who knows? What is celebrated with the candles, though, is that when the temple was taken back, there was only enough oil to burn the eternal flame at the ark for one day, and it would take eight days for more to arrive. And by some miracle, if you like, it lasted eight days, and there you have something to commemorate. But why presents? Why the menorah in the park next to the Christmas tree? Well, in the early 20th century, some companies started to smell money. Potato latkes were popular at Hanukkah, so Aunt Jemima Flower and Crisco started advertising they were great for making latkes, and they gave out recipes. Also, some Jewish leaders saw many Jews getting involved in Christmas because there were presents, parties, and better music. As good as Judas Maccabeus is, and it is good, Handel's Messiah is better. Some rabbis started to push gift-giving at Hanukkah to keep the flock happy and away from Christmas. As for menorahs in the park, the leader of the Chabad movement, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, figured this would be a good way to show Jewish pride. And since Hanukkah was not, per se, a religious holy day, rabbis were free to be at public lightings in a way they would not be for most other Jewish holidays when they would have to be in synagogue. There are also some interesting legal cases. Courts decided that while a creche showing the birth of Jesus would be religious and violate separation of church and state, if, say, on the grounds of City Hall, a menorah, since there was nothing strictly holy about it, was like a Christmas tree, of the holiday and of a religious culture, but not in and of itself religious. So, it could stay. And that brings us to Hanukkah today. Playing dreidel, perhaps the single most boring game ever, which generally peters out in about three minutes, about half the time it takes Don McLean to sing about it. Chocolate coins that always taste like they were left in the pantry by Judas Maccabee himself. And candles that are a beauty to behold, and a thing to worry about the cat knocking over and setting fire to the drapes. But, if the Lakas are made right, and not the starchy paperweights one of my aunts created, there is nothing better in this world. And it is a week of joy and presence and singing songs, and for many Jews, a day of being public and proud of who they are in a world that has often not been kind, and a world in which they often had to hide who they are. In a way, Hanukkah becoming a big thing in America is, along with everything else, a sign that Jews finally felt they were in a country where they did not have to hide. And for all people, that is something worth celebrating. This is the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network welcome back to the holiday special from the cbs audio network i'm gil gross one of the biggest challenges of this time of year is just surviving it getting presents through security making your flights and making all the traveling as relaxing all right let's not shoot that high lila battis is here to help us with that she is senior editor of travel and leisure and happy holidays and thank you for being with us lila thank you So let's get started. What can we do to make all this easier?
10: Well, the number one go-to tip that we always recommend is anytime there's a busy season of travel, if you can book your trips for off-peak hours, that's going to be ideal. So if you're driving, if you can leave super, super early, maybe around 5 a.m., you'll have a better shot of beating traffic. Just any way that you can be at the airport or be en route at a time when most people don't want to be, you're going to have a much less painful experience.
1: Christmas Day, by the way, is always a great day to travel. I mean, the airports are as empty as they're going to be this this time of year.
10: Absolutely, and it's amazing how painless travel can be when you're not having to deal with, you know, thousands of other people.
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Also, you know, preparing for your future trips and your future holidays and doing this next year, doing things like getting TSA pre-checked, these things can make your holiday traveling a lot easier.
10: Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of thinking about what parts of the travel experience you find the most stressful and investing in things that will make that easier for you and it's kind of frustrating when you when you realize that you know airline travel is always going to be a pain you just have to pay money for it to be less of a pain but i think of it as an investment in my own mental health and (laughs) having a stress-free arrival so stuff like clear stuff like tsa pre-check and if you're worried about the cost you know one way to think about it is if you spread it out over the cost of every flight if you're only taking 10 round-trip flights a year then Getting clear costs $9 a flight, and personally, I'd pay $9 a flight to avoid an hour-long security line.
1: Yes, and with things like TSA PreCheck and Global Entry, check your credit card. Some of the higher-end credit cards of all companies actually will pay for these things. So check your benefits and see if that's in there because if it's in there, that can not only save you the eighty two $100 but can uh, just make life a, a lot easier for you at travel time. One of the things that you have also in traveling is if you're going to have to make connections somewhere – do it in places less likely to get hit by weather. In in other words, try not to do it through O'Hare
10: in Chicago. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, there's only so much you can work around that because there's always that domino effect when flights get delayed out of O'Hare, then everyone around the country is going to be feeling it. But the more you can minimize the chances that your flight is going to get stuck with weather, the better luck you're going to have getting to your destination on time. So if you can route through warm weather hubs, things like places like Atlanta or Dallas-Fort Worth that still have a lot of connections, but, you know, they're less likely to get hit by a big blizzard in Chicago.
1: Okay. You've got a wonderful idea for after this is over to have a kind of staycation where you leave yourself some days where you can actually take a deep breath because all of this holiday cheer... While wonderful is
0: exhausting.
10: <laughs> yeah, and this is kind of a twofer because usually coming back a day before, like if you're flying back on Saturday instead of Sunday, that's also gonna, you know, beat peak traffic. But if you just have a day to decompress, even if you want to fly back in the morning instead of on an evening flight, and then spend the day, you know, doing your household stuff, but also taking some time to relax, do stuff that feels special to you, maybe indulge a little, um, and and think about you and, and it kind of helps sort of extend the vacation and extend the having a nice special time to yourself without, you know, all the family holiday madness.
1: You can stretch your feet out more than four inches in front of you. That's nice. (laughs)
10: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Let's talk about some of the other things that we just started to touch on, such as preferred seating and checked baggage. Give us some tips about those things.
10: You know, as I was saying before, one of my favorite things is just to think about the parts of travel that you find the most irritating and think of investing in your mental health um, to fix that stuff. So if you're really tall, if you're always cramped as soon as someone reclines their seat, then maybe $30 for a preferred seat in an exit row. If it works out to $5 an hour and you're going to arrive happy and without bruised knees and maybe get some sleep on the plane, that might be worth it. Um, If you're frantic about packing and you always find yourself up late the night before trying to cram everything into a carry-on, maybe just pay the check baggage fee and throw everything you need in and don't worry about it. You know, it's, it's all about finding ways that you can invest in yourself and invest in your own, your own mental health to make travel a little bit less stressful and painless for you.
1: Yeah. And this doesn't work for everybody. I understand that because most people like to cut kind of wait till the last minute, but I, I got, used to the idea when I was doing a lot of travel for work as a reporter of trying to get this done the day before I mean like a real day before like having you know finishing 24 hours in advance and then doing house stuff getting the packing done getting there early having breakfast over in the lounge reading the paper and then leisurely getting up to the gate it just it means getting up earlier which some people hate but at the airport itself where things really, really get crazy, it makes life so much more relaxing if you can do that.
10: Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned you mentioned credit cards. I think every travel editor I know has the Chase Sapphire Reserve because you get global entry, you get priority pass lounge access, you get a $400 travel reimbursement every year. Just having that card and having, you know, lounge access beforehand and not having to worry it has made my trips feel so much less stressful because, like you said, just escaping the madness a little bit feeling like you're not frantically trying to rush to your gate, having some time, it makes all the difference in the world.
1: Yes, and some of those premium cards aren't worth it if you don't do a lot of traveling. If you do a lot of traveling, they're worth at least looking into because although there's a lot of upfront money, very often with things like free global entry or free TSA and the lounges, and very often there's like $300 at this store and $200 at that store, sometimes those turn out if, again, the benefits are things you will actually use.
10: Absolutely. And, you know, there's lots of good resources online for parsing what benefits might work for you and what card might be best depending on your travel habits and needs. Um, If you're a frequent flyer with one airline, go for the airline card so you can maybe get closer to that status, which also makes travel a lot less painful. You know, it's all about just doing a little research ahead of time and figuring out long-term strategies.
1: In terms of, we've talked a lot about airports and things, in terms of just getting ready for driving and and all of that, other than, you know, leave early, take snacks, anything we can tell people?
10: Um, I would just say prepare for the worst case scenarios. You know, you want to make sure you've got your spare tire, you've got your jumper cables. I know most people think of that stuff, but um, especially with winter travel and with people maybe doing routes in bad weather, driving on streets they're not used to, it's really important to make sure that you've got everything you need Um, I'll also say, make sure you pack warm clothes and warm shoes in your car. Even if you think you're just going from point A to point B, you never know. Um, just good to be prepared in case you get stuck on the side of the road.
1: Exactly. And if you're going to an area with a lot of snow, Make sure you might call ahead to wherever you're staying, whether it's people, a hotel or anything else, or sometimes even, believe it or not, the the state troopers in that area to ask them whether chains are something that you might need or if you're flying somewhere to rent a car whether that might come with it, because there are some parts of America, if you don't have chains, you may be stuck for days.
10: <laughs> oh, yeah. Especially if you're going to places where uh, maybe they're not salting and plowing as frequently. If you're driving somewhere rural, you're off the main roads, definitely do your research ahead of time to make sure that you're going in prepared.
1: Yeah. I know people who went to Lake Tahoe and thought, that's great. I'll be back for work on January 2nd. And sometime around January 6th, they actually got back. Oh, so. gosh. <laughs> yeah. It's it's something you really to check on if you're going to ski areas or any area that gets a ton of snow. Lila Battis is the senior editor of Travel and Leisure. Uh, happy holidays to you, a safe holiday to you. And uh, next time we talk, tell me whether you practiced everything you preached to. <laughs>
10: All right. Sounds good. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Lila. You're listening to The Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. welcome back to the holiday special from the cbs audio network i'm gil gross yes virginia there is a santa claus is probably the most famous answer to a letter to the editor ever published here's jane Pauley on cbs sunday morning
11: of all the letters to santa it's this one about santa that stands out you probably know it printed in the new york sun in 1897.
9: dear editor i am eight years old Some of my little friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Virginia O'Hanlon, 115 West 95th Street.
11: Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus, was the famous response from editor Francis P. Church. He exists as certainly as love... And generosity and devotion exist. 120 years later, the Yes, Virginia column is the most reprinted newspaper editorial in history. Virginia O'Hanlon's handwritten note has never left her family.
4: So, written in uh, cursive, James
11: Temple is her grandson.
4: Her letter, as I think about it, brings back my childhood
11: and Brock Rogers is her great-grandson, who keeps it in a scrapbook.
4: As a parent
0: of two young kids, I want them to maintain their innocence for as long as possible. And the Yes, Virginia story, the letter, the response that she got is a way to do that for them.
9: Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus.
11: O'Hanlon, who loved sharing her story, led a life of achievement. Ahead of her times, a modern woman, She earned a master's degree and doctorate in education, and for decades was a New York City school teacher and principal.
0: To be a single
4: parent, to end up with a PhD, uh, very remarkable.
11: She died at age 81 in 1971. As for her childhood house in Manhattan, it's now home to the studio school where her legacy is celebrated for all to see
12: Virginia and here, Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus?
13: Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor men can see.
11: Janet Rotter oh, is head of the school. What makes it so special is the idea of curiosity, the idea of questioning, which is really at the heart of education, of humanity, of who we are.
0: Dear editor, I'm eight years old.
11: Brock Rogers says the letter is worth tens of thousands of dollars, but it's not for sale.
0: Oh, no, no, that's staying in the family. (laughs) There's no price tag on that.
11: And in a time of viral videos and instant messages, a little girl's query from many Christmases past has a permanent place in our world. It really is a story of hope, and it's a story of bringing people together.
4: There's something there for everybody.
0: Merry Christmas.
1: This is the holiday special from the CBS
9: Audio Network.
1: Welcome back to the holiday special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The start of the new year means looking back at the old year for award possibilities. And with us to do that from Fandango, we're joined by its managing editor, Eric Davis. Eric,
13: looking back, good year, bad year? I think it was a great year, uh, especially in this latter part of the year coming down the uh, the pipe here. Uh, really great movies, different movies. Uh, unexpected films that are really percolating uh, in the awards conversation that I think uh, six months ago we would not have expected those films to be big awards contenders. And so, uh, really exciting year uh, if you're a film fan, uh, all kinds of movies. Uh, movies, I think, really driven by ensembles. Uh, you know, I think the films that are in the conversation this year, uh, what a lot of them have in common is that they aren't just one person. Uh, maybe with the exception of Joker or something like that, but uh, a lot of them driven by their ensembles.
1: Yeah, you know, it's been talk, before we get into individual categories, it's been talked about for years that maybe there ought to be an ensemble category because that does seem to be the case for so many films, especially the smaller, more dramatic films.
13: Yeah, the the only area that you really get that or the only award show, uh, major award show, is, is SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. Yep. They do don't do a best picture. they do a best uh, ensemble. And uh, I think their their films this year are uh, good choices uh, that were nominated for for that award. Uh, but you could have nominated twenty movies for that award uh, because I think just the ensembles are great. And I would always be there uh, for an, a best ensemble uh, at, at the Oscars. I think at this point in time though, they're they're looking to to see what categories they can cut from the Oscars. so it's not a seven hour show. Uh, But in terms of additions, yes, best ensemble and also best stunts. I think uh, the SAG has a stunt category and I think the Oscars should have one, too.
1: Best Supporting Actor. I am hearing a lot of talk for Joe Pesci, who seemingly was out of that kind of acting conversation for a long time. Yeah, The Irishman.
13: Yes, I was joking before that. I feel like voters uh, are getting their ballots this year with like The Irishman and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood already written in, and then it's like, okay, now fill in your other ones. I mean, these those two films uh, are going to be nominated for a ton of a ton of uh, Oscars, uh, a ton of awards. And uh, Joe Pesci and Al Pacino, actually, it's it's interesting when it comes to the Irishman, it seems like Robert De Niro is not the one that is being nominated. He is at the center of that film. It really is the supporting performances uh, from Al Pacino and Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci, uh, I really enjoyed him in the film. Uh, It was nice to see him. Uh, I think it's kind of. You know, him getting that award, may, him getting that nomination may be a little bit more of we may never see this guy again. Uh, let's give him a nomination. For me, Al Pacino, even though it is a classic showy Al Pacino p- performance, that is my favorite performance from that film. Uh, but those two guys very much sort of putting down some roots in that category, making it a little bit difficult for others. And I think when I say others, Brad Pitt is going to be a big contender there as is Tom Hanks, and maybe even Jamie Foxx for a film called Just Mercy that hasn't hit theaters yet. Uh, he's uh, being mentioned in there, too. And then you have smaller performances that I really enjoy, like uh, Jonathan Price in The Two Popes. He's really good. Um, there are some interesting supporting performances in Dolomite Is My Name, the Eddie Murphy film, and uh, and also Tracy Letts in Ford v. Ferrari. So a lot of really great supporting performances. Actor performances from uh, from veterans this year. Uh, the supporting actress category is a bit of a wild card. Uh, I think Annette Bening uh, could could be in there. Uh, she's very good. Laura Dern as the uh, <laughs> shark of a divorce attorney in Marriage Story. Uh, is is very, very good as well. You know, I think there are some smaller performances from, from uh, a woman in The Farewell. Uh, the woman who plays the grandmother is really great in The Farewell. Uh, so I think there's some other supporting performances. That's a category where we could see uh, some surprises. I would expect it, however, to come down uh, between Annette Benning and uh, Laura Dern. Laura Dern is the showier of the two performances, but she is uh, a lot of fun to watch. Uh, if you're a fan of Big Little Lies, some similarities between those characters uh, that she plays in on that show and in this movie.
1: Okay, into the best acting categories, best actor. I, I have a friend who's saying, I want to go for Adam Driver. I'm just not sure for which film.
13: Yeah, Adam Driver, really good in the report uh, that we were just mentioning Annette Benning for. Uh, also, Marriage Story. I think Marriage Story would be the film that we're seeing Adam Driver be nominated for uh, really good film. You know him and Scarlett Johansson finding their way into uh nominations in, in a few of these major awards, including SAG, including the Golden Globes. And you know he, he the performance is very realistic. I the film itself, Marriage Story, feels like a horror movie for married couples, but it is very well acted and very you know his performance in that is uh, is great. I mean, for me, I think that Joaquin Phoenix uh. I think this is the category he wins. I, I don't see anybody beating uh, Joaquin in Joker. Joker was a film that nobody really expected to make over a billion dollars worldwide. And then nobody ever expected it to be this kind of awards contender. But it is resonating with audiences uh, that aren't just comic book fans uh, resonating with all audiences my parents who are uh, in their 70s and 80s they love the film and so uh, the film is really connecting with uh, people of all ages and I think Joaquin Phoenix uh, is if that film is going to win one of these majors uh, I think it'll be that acting category and I think he's going to take it Uh, but you know watch out for Leonardo DiCaprio and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood he's also very good and Uh, And then, you know, we could see Eddie Murphy. Uh, He's on the bubble there for Dolomite Is My Name, as is Adam Sandler. Uh, He's on the bubble for the film Uncut Gems, which is also one of my favorite films of the year. So uh, it could be a fun category. Another one where we see some very recognizable names uh, popping up.
1: And Best Actress?
13: Best Actress should be uh, an interesting category. Renee Zellweger, sort of the early frontrunner. Uh, for playing Judy Garland in Judy, I think a lot of people watched that film and said, "You know what? She has it locked up." Next, but then you know we're seeing other performances after that. The Bombshell cast, uh, fantastic. Uh, Margot Robbie, uh, Charlize Theron as as Megan Kelly. I think Charlize is going to contend for that category alongside Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story. I think I think those three. Are going to be the names that you hear the most people talking about in terms of front runners. I think uh, at this moment, I would say Renee Zellweger still in that front runner lead, but watch out for Charlize, watch out for Scarlett Johansson, and then. Then it's a bit of a wild card. The actress race, not as as heated as it maybe was or competitive as it was uh, last year. Uh, and so you could see somebody like Lapita Nyong'o uh, from Jordan Peele's Us. She just picked up a SAG nomination. Uh, she could find her way into the best actress category uh, as well. So uh, that that category is, is in uh, Cynthia Erivo for Harriet. She just picked up a SAG nomination. So we could see that, that those last two spots in that category going to a number of different women this year.
1: Only have a little bit of time to tackle best picture. And we've mentioned once upon a time in Hollywood. Fascinating. One critic actually put it on his best picture and worst picture list because he thought Overall, one of the best pictures of the year, but thought the last 30 minutes was a disaster.
13: I thought the last 30 minutes were amazing, so I don't know what movie <laughs> he was watching. But uh, yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is fantastic. I think that film and and The Irishman, you're looking at like the old classics versus the new classics. Your vintage crew versus your sort of newer, flashier crew. The Scorsese versus the Tarantino. That is going to be the storyline This award season. That being said, those two films could cancel each other out. And that's when things get interesting. Uh, You know, I am a big fan of of a film called Parasite, uh, which is a Korean film. That is getting a lot of recognition. It was also nominated for the SAG Ensemble. It is a fantastic movie, uh, and it is one of those foreign language movies that is making its way now into the Best Picture race, similar to Roma last year. But this film, I think, more accessible and more entertaining uh, than Roma. So, Parasite could be a move—a a movie that makes some moves in that category. Also, look for Joker to be in there. Marriage Story will be in there. Ford v Ferrari, I think, will be in there. And then maybe Greta Gerwig's Little Women could show up. Uh, the Netflix film The Two Popes has a lot of fans that could show up too. So it's going to be interesting, I think, if if we once we get past that Irishman versus uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood battle to see what other films are in there. And if any of those films could really surprise kind of the way Green Book did last year and, uh, and take uh, Best Picture. From Fandango, Managing
1: Editor Eric Davis, as we take a look at who might have a couple of new doorstops uh, for the new year from the award shows. Eric, thank you so much for joining us.
13: Thanks for having me.
1: This is the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. It is the season of holiday gifts and decor, and whatever you've done this year, we want to help you think about trends for next year. You don't want to be the last one on the block with a real tree when everybody else has one made of leather. By the way, I made that up. That's not a real thing, I hope. Here to help us with trends, some last-minute affordable gifts, and more is the Health and Features Editor of Better Homes and Gardens, Amy Brightfield. Amy, happy holidays to you. And
5: to you, too.
1: Let's talk about trends because it's not something we always think of in terms of Christmas.
5: There are definitely trends. There's tons of decor trends because Christmas and holiday decor are part of people's homes. And as the design trends change, so do these trends because they involve home design. So, for example, you think of plaid as a traditional Christmas time decor, and that's still a trend, but you can mix it up with something like a buffalo check instead of a traditional tartan. So, the, usually the trends are maybe sometimes takes on classics, and you add in another, another element.
1: I think this may be because I'm a boy. What's a buffalo check?
5: It's big black and red checks.
1: Got it. Got it. It's just like, I know what mauve looks like, but if you ask me to match the color in the name, I have absolutely no idea. What are some of the other trends?
5: So another trend is sort of breaking down, not just using green and red, but doing green and white or red and white. And so that's really gives you the opportunity to mix in other accent colors with that. So like green and white and gold or red and white and maybe some black. So that's really a simplifying of the green and the red.
1: All right. And I see on your list is nostalgic decor. And, and, these days, what would be considered nostalgic? Because nostalgic for some people would be, you know, like a Led Zeppelin <laughs> Christmas ornament. Mm. And and by the way, I checked, there is a Jimmy Page tree topper.
5: Oh, good. It actually
1: exists. Oh, good. Yes. Okay. So, so what's nostalgic?
5: So no- nostalgic are those big bulb Christmas lights. You know, now the Christmas lights are little bulbs, but those old-fashioned, really big bulbs. Mm-hmm. The ceramic trees that you see, every you see them everywhere. Like, I don't know if a, a great aunt or a grandma had them. Christmas villages, snow envelopes, nutcrackers, sort of the antique versions of these things.
1: Got it. So we're talking real nostalgia now, not, not, you know, something from the 70s or 80s.
5: Right. No, no, no. Like, something from, like, a Christmas story.
1: <laughs> well... From a Christmas story, then we're talking about a a table lamp that looks like a leg.
5: Well, right. Well, maybe some of that, too. Okay.
1: (laughs) One of the other things we're dealing with this time of year is gift-giving, especially last-minute gift-giving, parties we may be going to after Christmas itself, Um, and we've already spent a ton of money, so... Anything under like 50 bucks that makes a nice gift?
5: Tons of things. So Better Homes and Gardens, we did a whole gift guide. Everything was under 50. And we found really great stuff. And it doesn't look cheap. You know, you think, oh, my God, it's going to be under a certain amount of money. And it's going to look crappy. And these things totally are... Fun and charming and will brighten up anybody's day anytime. So we found really colorful ornaments in the shape of each state. So you can send give those to everybody in your family if they live in different states. Those nice. are really pretty. Those are like 14 each at a place called aheirloom.com. Also, shoelaces. We found shoelaces in cute, fun patterns. I mean, those are anytime presents and good stocking stuffers. And those are from cutelaces.com. They're $8 a pair. That's for all ages. And then we also found these really great canisters that have plantable confetti. And that's great for New Year's Eve. So if you haven't gotten those, you still have time.
1: Wait, wait, wait. What's plantable confetti?
5: So basically you can plant, there's like little like seeds. It's confetti that's seeds that you can plant and they turn into herbs. Oh, wow. So it's useful and you're not just like sweeping up, sweeping everything up and throwing it in the trash.
1: Right, nice.
5: And then we found Bluetooth speakers that are in really bright, pretty colors like orange and navy, and they also float. Those were $40 each. And those are from the MoMA store, the Museum of Modern Art. They have a lot of – check out their store online. They have a lot of cute little trinket stuff. They also had really fun socks – and they, there's three pairs that come in a ready-to-give box. I know socks maybe sounds boring, but these are really not boring. And, you know, who doesn't lose, like, all their socks in the laundry all the time?
1: True. There's always one that just – it's one of the great mysteries of life where the other sock disappears.
5: And then we found another great thing, a bottle garden. So an insert slips into a bottle, and you can grow herbs on a windowsill. This was my favorite. It was, it's $22.
1: Very nice. Now, you mention in this list gifts that give back. And what do you mean by that?
5: So around this time of year and all around through the year, there's often gifts that they say, you know, you buy this gift and then we give a portion of the proceeds to a charity. And so we did a little bit of a guide. When you're going to buy these gifts, you really want to do your research on the gift and find out which specific charities they donate to. And so like, it's not enough to say, okay, we donate to this cause. You really want to find out what right. are the specific ones they donate to and how much they donate per item purchase. So you want to look for actual percentages of each sale rather than a vague a portion of the proceeds. And then you want to see their total contributions to date. So before you buy one of these, which is a great thing, it's really, really great, And but you get inundated with it, right? Like buy this and we give a portion of this to this charity, but you really want to do your homework to make sure that what when you're buying the item, like where where the money is going and how much of it is going there?
1: Right, and and whether that particular group is is using the money wisely. And there are several sides like Charity Navigator where you can really kind of check out and make sure a charity is is really a charity that it's you know going out and actually helping people.
5: Yes, definitely check on Charity Navigator.
1: Along, it, it kind of goes with that thought. There is this idea of it is the season not to g- just to give but to give back.
5: Right, and this is a big time of year when people want to volunteer, which is great. And the first place that people often want to give back is the soup kitchen, which is great, but actually they need volunteers most often the day after Christmas and yep. all throughout the winter. So everyone rushes to to do to volunteer at the food bank, you know, on Christmas Day or on Thanksgiving, but these places actually really need volunteers the day after those holidays and all throughout the winter. So don't forget about them. But then we also came with other places that are really great to volunteer as well in your community like the library. You can help people learn a second language, computer skills, file their taxes. There's a ton you can do at your local library to volunteer for your community.
1: That is a really good thing because I think when people think of volunteering at a library, they think well they want me to help you know, to put the books away or something like that. And there's really a lot more going on at libraries now than putting books away. In fact, I don't want to say books have become a secondary thing at the library, but there's so many things that are going on there these days that that really it's a place to check out.
5: Yeah, they're like little little community centers, really, libraries are. Um, And there's yes, there's absolutely so much more you can do besides filing books.
1: Okay, so there's the library. Where else?
5: So the firehouse, because during toy drives, they might need help sorting and matching toys to recipients. So you can always show up there, and and they might need you for other things too, but especially this time of year, firehouses often do toy drives and need people to help them sort the toys. And then you can also find other places around your town where you can volunteer that you might not know about by checking in with your local Chamber of Commerce.
1: Really? Okay. That's not a place I would have thought, but what kind of things might you find out about there?
5: So you might find out that maybe some local nursing homes might need some blankets or they might be looking for handmade cards or that's a really great thing that you can do with your family. Do some handmade cards, animal shelters in the area. Like a lot of times there's age limits on actually volunteering at the animal shelter, but you can collect items for the animal shelter. They often need rugs, blankets, and towels that they use for bedding. Um, you can also take treats to the elderly, like some, the community, the Chamber of Commerce might know that of organizations that need volunteers to visit the elderly, especially during the winter months and the holidays, or they might pick up litter at a local park. They might know that there local, their are local parks that are particularly in need of volunteers to help keep those up.
1: Right. And there very often may be, and you can find out about this from uh, organizations around town, there are people who don't get out in the winter at all, especially in areas uh, naturally where there's ice and uh, they have food delivered and things. But, you know, there, there are people in the neighborhood that people just don't see for months and they just kind of forget about them. And there are some organizations kind of devoted to making sure that. That somebody's just kind of checking up on them, to make sure everything's okay.
5: Right, and th- those are great things to do with your family, like kids and parents, kids and adults. It really teaches kids the benefits of giving back, and they and and everyone loves to see kids too.
1: Yes, they do. Yes, they do. One final thing on the firehouse this time of year a lot of firehouses some of course do it before the holidays, so that would be in the past for this year but some do it during the holidays where they let the kids come in they have a party at the firehouse it helps uh, people in the neighborhood meet the firefighters and the kids can crawl all over the fire equipment obviously if something happens everybody clears out but (laughs) you know there's there's food and things and it's it's a great time when i lived in new york there was a party at the Great Jones Street Firehouse every year, and it was just an absolute joy, even for the adults to sit around with the firefighters, but for the kids to be, you know, crawling all over the hook and ladders and everything and, you know, eating the chili. and That's going on this time of year, too, and it's something that you might want to check out. If you missed it this year in your neighborhood, look for it next year because a lot of firehouses do that.
5: Yeah, and that's a great way to get to, know, get to know the people that are serving your community. And the firefighters always love to see everybody, and they feel super appreciated.
1: Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And often you don't see them at all. Or when you see them, you don't have time to tell them how much you appreciate them. So that's actually a good thing for you to check out. And it's a a time of year where you can really make contact with them. Of course, there's lots more things that you can find at Better Homes and Gardens, where Amy Brightfield is Health and Features Director. Amy, once again, happy holidays.
5: Thank you. Happy holidays to you too.
1: You're listening to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the holiday special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Last year, a controversy exploded over the classic song, Baby, It's Cold Outside, as radio stations in Cleveland and San Francisco banished it from their holiday playlist because in the context of date rape drugs and the Bill Cosby trial, lines like a woman saying, hey, what's in this drink, while the guy tries to keep her from leaving the place, sounded bad. There was a backlash, but first, some background. First of all, though people referred to it as a Christmas song, it was never intended to be, and there's no mention of any holiday in the song, just that it's cold. So this could be a 4th of July song in Anchorage. Broadway composer Frank Lesser and his wife, like so many show business people in the 1930s and 40s, would hold parties at which everyone was expected to perform. And often, to impress their friends, they would write original material. Now, Lesser wrote Baby It's Cold Outside for he and his wife, singer Lynn Garland, to do as a goodbye song as they ushered people out of their apartment at night's end. And in 1944, that was supposed to be that, a private joke of a song sung by a couple already husband and wife that people asked them to keep singing at parties. Well, five years later, Lesser was writing songs for an Esther Williams musical called Neptune's Daughter, and here is where the irony lamp is brightly lit. The Hayes Office, which censored movies of that era, decided one song, I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China, was just too dirty. Now, there's nothing in that song about being shanghaied or anyone doing anything against their will. It was just... I'd like to be alone with you on the longest trip on a ship possible away from all
7: your other boyfriends.
2: Talk to myself alone
7: Get you and keep you in my arms evermore
2: Leave all your lovers Weeping on a faraway shore The Hayes
1: office approved lesser substituting, baby, it's cold outside. Now, if this makes no sense to you, welcome to the interesting world of censorship. In retrospect, all you can figure is, if you convince or keep a woman from leaving your apartment, maybe you can read a book to her or play board games or watch that newfangled television thing. Whereas on a slow boat to China, your options are much more limited now lesser's wife was livid about their private song becoming public to be sung by other people she said it was like being cheated on anyway filming it with ricardo Montalban using his hands to keep esther williams from leaving his place mgm knew it might have a problem so they turned the song on its head and almost forgotten now Right after the scene with Mountbatten and Williams, the song continued with co stars Betty Garrett and Red Skelton. Except in this scene, the woman was trying to keep the man from leaving her place. Simply must go.
8: Baby, it's cold outside. The answer is but no. Baby, it's cold outside. The
7: greeting has You're been.
1: Apparently, that made everybody nice happy until cool. last year. On CBS This Morning, Gail King spoke for the song. Nora O'Donnell had her doubts. And John Dickerson was in the middle the
2: station's poll, whether to put baby it's cold outside back on the air runs through Monday. At last check, the votes were running more than 90 percent in the song's favor. Please count me in the 90 percent. I just feel I want to say to people, it's a Christmas song that was written years ago. I think you have to look at the intent of the song. And when you look at the intent, it's a very to me, a very flirtatious back and forth between the two of them. I think you can look at anything and read something into it these days. And I just don't think that was the case when they wrote that song and the intent of the song and I think we have to look at that. I mean I think Tony Moranti in the studio, who I love and adore, said, What's next? I saw D- Mama Kiss and Santa Claus. I mean I am I'm, I'm really I just I'm I think we should have irritated. a Gale I think we should have a Gail essay on this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> am I the only I think one we that just feels did. that way? Am I the only one that feels this way?
14: Well nobody wants to say I think But if people are calling in because it's basically triggering this reaction in them, that's these are people who have been through an experience. Yeah. That's pretty powerful. I totally get what you're saying about the context, but that powerful reaction has to be.
8: Uh, Did you see in that with. video
2: how she she tries to leave and he grabs her arm and then she looks at her arm and then he closes he the things as you can't leave. I, I mean that so part is is somewhat coercive. I mean I I, I have to I, say it's really making like me rethink this song. Uh, yeah, it is making me rethink it. Not me. I'm going to go back and. Okay. No, so I mean, so we just have to agree to disagree. I just think that it's a light, flirtatious song. And, and, and she clearly doesn't seem to be so upset. Keep looking at the whole dan- whole darn song before you make a decision. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so irritated by it. So I'm well, my I might guess. People sit down. My- we are losing our sense of humor nowadays. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big favor. I'm, I'm a big supporter and big proponent of the Me Too movement. But I just don't think we have to nitpick every single little thing.
1: A final note the protest backfired. Radio stations that had stopped playing the song started playing it again. And a Dean Martin version of the song sung to a whole chorus of women was last year's second most downloaded song.
11: How can you do
6: this thing to
1: me? It's
4: to be talked to Think of
6: my lifelong song At least
4: there will be plenty place If
6: you've got pneumonia and I really can't Get over that old now Baby, it's cold Baby, it's
12: cold outside.
1: This is the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We want to look ahead at the film industry to see what trends are coming up because obviously a lot of things are changing. Eric Davis, managing editor of Fandango, joins us. Eric, let's start with The Irishman. So fascinating. Some weeks in the movie theaters, then huge audience streaming. I mean, tens of millions of people, if we can believe the the Netflix figures on that. And a lot of people are watching it more the way they would watch a binged download. An hour here, another hour here, final hour over there. What does that tell us about the future of films and streaming?
13: Well, I definitely think that, uh, you know, we could see more of that. Uh, You know, we're seeing... Uh, streamers like Netflix uh, and Apple uh, and Amazon have a lot of money to give these filmmakers uh, carte blanche in terms of what they want to create, and so uh, I think that's really great. If you are a fan, I think the follow. I think twenty twenty is going to be a great year for fans uh, because you are getting a ton of content. Uh, from all across the board and it's great to see some of these filmmakers like Martin Scorsese who had a hard time getting the Irishman financed at a major studio to get everything that he wanted for that film and and everyone he wanted for that film so I think if you're a movie fan it's great to see the Irishman enjoying the kind of success that it is Uh, but I also think Netflix uh, knows that They want these films to to resonate. They want these films to to be experienced uh, also on a big screen. And that's why they rented out the Belasco Theater on Broadway to show The Irishman. That's why they are investing in the Paris Theater in New York to screen some of their films on a big screen. And I think uh, that is actually, I see that being the future. It's interesting. I think a lot of the conversation is around everybody streaming, everybody staying home now, everybody watching films at home. But I think as more and more content builds up on these streaming services and as we continue to add more streaming streaming services, it's going to be hard uh, to, to figure out which of those films matter, uh, which are the ones that everybody kind of uh, are talking about and how do we eventize. Uh, our films. And I think that we're going to eventually see the movie palace. I feel the movie palace make a, make a comeback because these streaming services are going to want to take their original content and put it up on a pedestal. And it's hard to do that when it's surrounded by so much other content. Uh, And when you put it up on a pedestal, how do you do that? You put it in a theater. And so I definitely think the movie going experience is going to swing back the other way as we see these streaming services jockey to, to make their original content stand out in a bigger, flashier way.
1: You also have people just trying to figure out how many streaming services they're going to subscribe to. Fandango Now, which you're associated with, at this point has, I think, the largest catalog of movies, right?
13: It does, and it's not a subscription uh, service. So it's you can go on there and you can rent and you can buy movies. Uh, these are films that aren't available on streaming services like Netflix yet certain films have to wait a certain amount of time before they are able to go on a streaming service and so uh, or a subscription based service and so uh, fandango now has a huge library and the largest library of 4K movies as well all kinds of discounts. I know we just ran a, when the Golden Globes were announced, we ran a discount where every film that was nominated that is available on Fandango now is 50% off. And so, uh, you know, Fandango has the flexibility to do things like that, uh, not just with movies, and t- uh, but also TV shows. So, you know, you can Fandango at the theater or you can Fandango at home. <laughs> and so it's uh, a lot of, that's how people are sort of um, operating these days and that's how they're going about their business. And so I think that, uh, Where we want to be, wherever they they are watching movies and TV. Yeah, and it's
1: more of an a la carte thing to pick out what you like, which is an interesting alternative to you know getting involved in a streaming thing. Like you've uh, binged that show and you go, uh, why am I still subscribing to this? So that battle is going to be interesting. One of the other trends for next year that I've seen is the same trend this every other year. I was looking at the movies. This is just through the spring. Okay, I'm not doing the whole year. Dulo, we've no choice but to embark on this this journey. Uh, New Dr. Doolittle, Quiet Place 2. Uh, Birds of Prey.
5: The Joker and I broke up.
1: Fantasy Island? Seriously, Fantasy Island. There is an elevator.
6: In the elevator, you press the button to the floor with no name.
7: Good evening, I'm Mr. Rurik. Let me officially welcome you to Fantasy Island. Live-action Mulan. Do you know why the
4: phoenix sits on the right hand of the emperor? She is his
1: guardian. The New Mutants, another X-Men film. Peter Rabbit 2, James Bond number 25, Legally Blonde 3, Fast and Furious 9, and 31 years later, a new Top Gun in which I guess uh, Tom Cruise plays a grown-up Wilbur Wright. Your reputation precedes you.
6: I have to admit I wasn't expecting an invitation back.
1: They're called orders, Maverick. This is going to be a continuing thing, remakes
13: yeah remakes sequels reboots uh and we you don't even want to see what the list of 2021 looks like it's it's a lot more of that but it's exciting i think for fans who are invested in these these brands and these franchises and look a sequel is the biggest film of all time right now uh, avengers endgame and so uh i think that and some of the more entertaining films that came out this year were sequels uh or or sort of reboots uh, that are also sequel. You know, they kind of function in all different ways. And that Fantasy Island movie actually is an interesting take because it's a horror film. Uh, and so it's a it's a different spin from the Blumhouse folks uh, on Fantasy Island, very different from the TV show. But but uh, it's a it's a it's an interesting take on Fantasy Island. I'll, I'll well, one of way. the interesting things they
1: can do is the kind of reboot. I remember when they announced the TV reboot of Battlestar Galactica, and I went, "Oh my gosh, why?" That was just one of the worst shows ever. And the new Battlestar Galactica, of course, was a brilliant show yep. that didn't even need the callback to the original show. So I wonder if we might see more of that kind of thing than the kind of mistakes we've seen over the years like Wild Wild West and Maverick and so many other things that tried to reboot a TV show or an old movie that just looked pallid.
13: Yes, uh, and uh, speaking of, of TV shows that become movies, uh, The Sopranos is is getting a movie actually next year, The Many Saints of Newark. It's a, a prequel. Um, so that, that'll be an interesting one. James Gandolfini's son is playing the young... Tony Soprano, uh, so that'll that'll be a fascinating sort of one to see, and you know the TV to movie is 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 doing pretty well actually. You know, um, Downton Abbey uh, was a huge success, I think, for focus features uh, in 2019. So uh, I think we will see more. Sort of uh, TV shows mind. I mean, look, it's we're in the age of IP. IP is the most important, uh, valuable thing to, especially the main studios. Um, and
1: just for clarity's sake, uh, IP stands for intellectual property. Yes. For those, for those playing
13: along at home, who- when they have. An IP that that is familiar and a brand that is built in and has an audience, then it gives them a a head start, so to speak, at the box office because they already know that people are familiar with it. Uh, And the success of some of those IPs, some of these sequels and reboots, and look, the whole, you know, we can look at a slate and ring off 10 movies and it makes it sound like every movie that's coming out is a sequel or a reboot. But, you know, in between all of those, there will be a lot of risk taking and there will be a lot of smaller films and, and movies to discover. And so I think that the success of some of these films that are big sequels and reboots, the more successful they are, then the more sort of creative risk-taking I think a studio may feel in terms of uh, taking a chance on something uh, like a Joker.
1: Eric Davis is managing editor at Fandango. Eric, thank you. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to you, too. You're listening to The Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The holidays are here and so is Elizabeth Graves, the editor-in-chief of Martha Stewart Living, with some timely advice. Don't get so wrapped up in planning all these get-togethers of family and friends that you miss the point of them. Elizabeth, happy holidays to you. Thank you. Yeah, and this is something that happens. You can get so wrapped up in the planning and then the doing when everybody's at the house that you, you kind of miss them.
8: Yes, it's so true. I mean, the holidays are the most wonderful time of the year, but also often the most overwhelming time. And, you know, we really have to focus on enjoying the now um, because what the holiday season really is about is coming together. You know, it's a time for reflecting and being restorative. Um, You know, it has a lot of different meanings with whatever you're celebrating, but... There was nothing ever written that was saying that holidays should be stressful and yet they are for people. Um, So at Martha Stewart Living, we really try to give people lots of glorious ideas, of course, to make it special. We want to make it special, but make it stress-free. And I think it really starts with setting your priorities of what you want your holiday to be. If it's really about being with family, then make sure you're doing that. Make sure you're not getting distracted from that. If you really want downtime, you know, it makes it easier to pass on things that might come along if you know what you want out of the holiday. So that's one thing we always say is really, what do you want out of it? So you can pass on things that might make you feel more harried than holiday.
1: Here's here's a tip that sounds awful to people, and and yet it's worked for me. Which is instead of last minute shopping like the last couple of days, oh, I haven't gotten this for them and and all of that, I forward them the tracking number. <laughs> it's it's coming. It's, it's on coming its way. To your home. I don't have to run around.
8: It's on its way, and you know, I really think that um, hopefully the holidays gives us all a chance to be patient with each other and kind with each other, yes. and the thought and the intent is there. So you know, we also think like don't stress if 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 something falls through (laughs) forgiveness is big here
1: well one of the things that happens over the holidays is you sometimes get information you did not know about relatives and friends and it can be that you're both big fans of uh some tv show where they're going to drop the new episodes and instead of just getting together on facebook or someplace and uh and discussing it afterwards and invite somebody over to watch it together
8: definitely and study after study shows that person-to-person contact and actually picking up that phone and talking to someone, maybe not texting, maybe not um, always through social media, is really what is making people feel more connected these days. So, you know, we'll experience it over these holidays, but keep that momentum going and pick up the phone and invite someone over. It it can be a lonely time of year for people, so it really um, is a great time to start the new year off with lots of one-on-ones, stock your, key, your tea cupboard and have your best friend over to watch a movie. And I think it's it's in our attitude of, of how we embrace it. But post-holiday, it certainly isn't a time to hibernate. Um, you know, people, it's true, they don't really um, pick up the phone as much anymore. And sometimes I think it it's like the gym in a way or going to a party that at first you're like, I don't know if I want to do this. And then you get there or you get on the phone and you're so happy you did it. And then yeah. you're like, why don't I do this all the time? That one-on-one conversation and exchange you just can't get that kind of metadata from a text or an emoji you you really i think you know how someone's doing by seeing them and hearing them
1: some wonderful tips in the double issue of martha stewart living elizabeth graves is the editor-in-chief elizabeth happy holidays to you again thank you so much for being with us thank you you're listening to the holiday special from the cbs audio network Welcome to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The story of Jesus is, of course, intimately entwined with Bethlehem and Nazareth, two cities rich in history, but which have fared very differently in modern times. Nazareth, which is in Israel, and Bethlehem, which is in the occupied West Bank. We're joined from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy by Ambassador Dennis Ross, a former special assistant to President Barack Obama, who played an important part in several accords between Israel and its Arab neighbors, and by David Makofsky, director of the Project on Arab-Israeli Relations, who with Mr. Ross co-authored the book, Be Strong and of Good Courage, and the host of the Decision Points podcast. Thank you for being here, Mr. Makovsky. Delighted to be with you. And thank you for being here, Mr. Ross. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you. Let's start with Bethlehem, and just visiting Bethlehem is interesting. You can get to both Bethlehem and Nazareth, but if you land in Israel and go for tourist information, you'll be richly rewarded with things about Nazareth, but not so much about Bethlehem, I take it, because it's in the West Bank.
4: Yes, uh, the difference is Nazareth is a is is a city in Israel, uh, and Bethlehem is is in the West Bank. One one thing that you see most is Israelis will not go into the West Bank because they're actually they, to go into the West Bank now. You actually have to have a pass. That didn't used to be the way it was, but uh, at the time of the Second Intifada, everything changed, and that was really from the year two thousand one to about the year two thousand five. So it's very rare for Israelis. Uh, unless they have some specific reason and a past to go there. Uh, and I do think that they are it's not that the Israelis don't make it possible, especially for Christian tourists to go to Bethlehem. They certainly do. But obviously it's not a surprise that they're more comfortable with people going to Nazareth because it doesn't raise any potential questions on security. I remember with my wife, a fellow broadcaster, and a journalist friend,
1: Daoud Katab, we visited Bethlehem during the first Antifada, and we were alone at the Church of the Nativity, where Jesus right. is said to have been born, uh, other than soldiers, and this one guy sitting outside the church who was desperately trying to sell souvenirs, but there, there was nobody there. How often has Bethlehem been caught up in the politics and battles in the Middle East?
4: Well, it's not a surprise that it does get caught up in it, but I would say there were really two periods where you would experiencing something like what you saw, and that was during the first Intifada, which was referred to as the children of the stones because it was it was characterized more by stones than by bombs. And then the second Intifada, where it really it was extremely dangerous and you had lots of bombs, lots of shootings and so forth. Uh, I would say Bethlehem, at least during uh, I think the Christmas season, once again has a significant number of tourists who come to it. Uh, so it's, I would, on the average during the Christmas time, you will have a significant visitation of tourists. The fact is during the rest of the year, you've seen a significant drop off. There, there was a period when there was an expectation that tourism would be very high there, and uh, a, you know a major new hotel was built there with that expectation. Uh, and unfortunately, it hasn't been able to fulfill those expectations.
15: But I, w- I would add that the you know since the the second intifada, the second Palestinian uprising ended, the end of two thousand and four, start of two thousand five, with the death of Yasser Arafat, um, this new period, and it's already been like um, fourteen years or so. Um, you know, the the, the the cities are quiet. Uh, you don't have you know the the shooting, the the you know the the violence that you had in those periods the late eighties and the early part of the two thousands so and i think part of that is that the israeli and palestinian security services under the table are cooperating even daily uh, this is not a favor to the other side but the palestinian authority also wants to keep their their streets safe they don't want to see uh, jihadi elements there so they they do work together with israel and uh... certainly the situation is better and uh... for the uh... For the pilgrims, for the tourists who come around holiday time, um, I I do think it's a festive period.
1: Yeah, it is. And Bethlehem is lucky in many ways because of that tourism and so many of the jobs there have to do with tourism. I think not as many people lost their jobs when they were cut off from Israel.
4: Look, this is uh, a historic uh, religious site. Uh, It is uh, large numbers of pilgrims go every year. To visit it. Many of these pilgrims, obviously, they, they go to the, the religious, Christian religious sites that are in Israel, and they also go to, to Bethlehem, and they, they go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in, in Jerusalem. And, you know, there's the, the number of Christian pilgrims that come every year is well over one million. So, it's, this is something David's point is right. This is something that's extremely important for the Palestinian Authority because it's a significant source of revenue for them.
1: Yeah, it is interesting that for the most part, except during that siege when Palestinian fighters sought refuge at the Church of Nativity back in 2002, for the most part, it's been kept out of the problems. You have the Midnight Mass there, which is uh, broadcast around the world at Christmas time, and that site, even in heavily Muslim, Palestinian West Bank,
4: seems well-protected and cherished. It is. It is, by the way. What is interesting is, you know, Bethlehem at one time was a largely Christian city, uh, most of the christians left bethlehem uh, the palestinian christians uh, but the truth is yes this is a it, it's not a surprise that the the people who live
15: there understand how important these sites are for their own livelihood look i think also i wouldn't underestimate the importance of a leadership change when yasser arafat was still alive during that period of the second intifada he was he was the revolutionary who sadly couldn't live without a revolution um and that was that really defined the last period of his life, in particular the Second Intifada. You know, he was succeeded by Mahmoud Abbas, who is someone who was publicly critical of the whole approach of a second Intifada. He talked against the militarization of the uprising. and since he's become the leader, we have not seen a return to the the violence uh, um, on the scale that we saw between. 2001 uh, to 2005. So it's it's a sign, as uh, Dennis and I also wrote in our recent book, I mean, leadership really makes a difference.
1: Let me finish up by talking about uh, Nazareth. It's also an interesting place. After Israel became a state, the city surrendered to the understanding that the Arabs could stay after that agreement, an Israeli general ordered them evacuated and a brigade commander said we're not going to do that and fortunately for the people in the city, Ben-Gurion eventually agreed, even though that brigade commander was still relieved of his post. This is kind of the Arab capital of the state of Israel. Uh, what does this history of Nazareth tell us about the relationship between Jews and Arabs there and, and across the Middle East?
4: You know, it's a wonderful question because uh, the real story of what's going on with Israeli Arabs in uh, Israel is not being told. Nazareth itself has obviously evolved. There have been strong issues actually between Christians and Muslims uh, within Nazareth. That's where there's been real conflict has been between them and each side trying to get the Israeli government to sort of take their side of the argument. But that was, that's something that we saw more in the past. What we're seeing today among the Israeli Arabs uh, is a desire to be more completely integrated into Israel. Uh, There's polling in the last year that shows that in in the 60 percent number, 60 to 65 percent, Israeli Arabs define themselves as good Israelis. Uh, And they became fed up with their own party leaderships who they felt were identifying themselves more as Palestinians than Israelis. And they were saying, look, we want better infrastructure where we live. We want to deal with crime where we live. They had very practical day-to-day issues. They want a piece of the pie— Uh, And in a sense, they're demanding of their own leaders that they pay more attention to what their needs are. And it's, I think, an indication that there's an interesting evolution taking place with Israeli Arabs. Apropos of your question, I would just say, go into any hospital in Israel, 30% of the doctors are Arab. Go into any drugstore, almost all of the pharmacists are Arab. Uh, Walk down the promenade in uh, Tel Aviv, the boardwalk towards a Jaffa on a Thursday afternoon, early Thursday evening, you will see uh, Jewish families next to, uh, to Muslim families, uh, and they're barbecuing. Uh, you get a picture of coexistence that you actually can't see anywhere else in the Middle East. That's a picture that isn't shown very often and, and is almost never talked about, but it should be.
1: It's a good place for us to leave it for this season for now. Ambassador Dennis Ross, former special assistant to President Barack Obama, has served uh, both Republican and Democratic administrations and was instrumental in several of the most important accords between Israel and its Arab neighbors. David Mikovsky, director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations for the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, who, with Mr. Ross, co-authored the book Be Strong and of Good Courage, and is the host of the Decision Points podcast. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Christmas music is an important part of the holidays, so important that now some radio stations start playing it in early November. We're joined by two people from the Library of Congress, Music Librarian Raymond White. Raymond, good to have you with us. My pleasure and Laura Schissel. Laura, also good to have you with us. Glad to be here. We want to look at a couple of the biggest songs of the season. These songs that get played this time of year really kind of divide up into three areas, sacred, secular,
0: and winter. Can you explain how that division goes? Absolutely. The sacred songs that are most associated with Christmas, the Christmas carols that people think of, were mostly written in the 18th and 19th centuries, but they've been around for a long time. They've been very familiar since most people were kids, and they're just part of the season. Then we get the secular songs, most of which have a really big aspect of nostalgia. Um, White Christmas is certainly one of those, but so is chestnuts roasting on an open fire and have yourself a merry little Christmas and so forth. And then there are those winter songs. Jingle Bells is first on the list. It It's a functional Christmas song. You hear it this time of year, but there's nothing about Christmas in it.
1: And White Christmas falls where secular, certainly not religious, but it specifically mentions
0: Christmas. It Absolutely. mentions Christmas, and it has a huge aspect of nostalgia in it. It comes from 1942. It was first heard when Bing Crosby sang it in the movie Holiday Inn, and it's sung by a character in, as he's remembering what Christmas was like long ago.
10: I'm dreaming
1: of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used
0: to know one reason that the song seems to have resonated with so many people, I think, is because it first appeared during the Second World War when lots of people were far away from their homes. And I think it really doesn't matter if one experienced white Christmases or not. It's, it's just a good feeling that's described in the song.
1: It is interesting how you can be in the deepest part of the South and not have seen snow in 10 years or maybe for some people ever, and there's something about the idea of a white Christmas and jingle bells and all these other songs that that seems to evoke something in people.
0: Well, it certainly does, and there's a fair number of these songs that refer to sleighs, sleigh bells, dashing through the snow in the one-horse open sleigh, How many people in America today have ridden in a one-horse open sleigh? Yet, it is a notion that's pervasive.
7: So
1: let's talk about the nostalgia aspect, because it does come out. Really, uh, Crosby sings it publicly for the first time in the Kraft Music Hall Christmas show just three weeks after Pearl Harbor, but it's not released as a record until late in 1942. And that whole idea of, of a Christmas like the ones I used to know, you know, with so many of your loved ones overseas fighting in a war I mean that's more than just the usual nostalgia for something like how Christmas was when you were a kid or something
0: oh I think there's no question about that and I think that because the song resonated with so many people that helps to explain why 50 million copies of the recording were sold it helps to explain why in the year since then There have been more than 500 recordings of this piece, and Crosby himself has sold an estimated 100 million copies by the time you count the albums on which it appeared. It resonates with people, and it's been played and sung and played and sung, so it's extraordinarily familiar.
1: It was a number one record back in the 1940s in three separate years. It also became number one on what back in those days was called the Race Charts, uh, then then the Black Charts, and then the R&B Charts, and now the Urban Charts. The interesting thing about that was Bing Crosby started out as a jazz singer. Artie Shaw mm-hmm. said uh, that he was the first hip white person born in the United States. But <laughs> white Christmas is definitely his later crooning style, and yet even there, this song, you know, crossed over across cultures, across the playlists and all of that. Why musically does this song work so well?
0: Well, it has an interesting melodic contour. It has a lot of chromatic notes, and yet it's structurally very simple. It's not long and complicated. It's easy to get your brain around the tune. It's easy to get your brain around the concept, I think.
7: I think a lot of it has to do with the genius of Irving Berlin. I mean, that's that's really the, the composer and the author of these of this, you know, iconic Christmas song. And this is a composer that wrote so many songs that are are part of the very fabric, you know, that uh, here in the United States and literally around the world. You know, and they I'm reminded they uh, asked Jerome Kern one time, who was really considered, you know, the the great American songwriter. And they said, "Where is Irving Berlin's place in American music?" And Jerome Kern, without batting an eye, said, "Irving Berlin has no place in American music. Irving Berlin is American music and I think I think a, a lot of the the popular we can analyze the song but a lot of it is is just the genius of Irving Berlin to sort of capture the moment in time and to make it timeless
1: well Irving Berlin said of White Christmas that uh, it was the best song that he ever wrote and then he paused and said actually it's the best song anybody ever wrote yes. and then, Crosby, when asked about, you know, the, the smash hit he had with this song, said, a jackdaw with a cleft palate could have sung it successfully. It, it just
0: <laughs> had that kind of effect on people. It really did. And it and it continues to. It's why it shows up in everybody's Christmas album now.
1: So there's a part of this. It's a secular Christmas song, as we mentioned. But like many other songs of the season, it's written by a Jewish American songwriter. Not only that writing at the time in The Sunshine, either at uh, the uh, Biltmore in Arizona or at the La Quinta in Southern California. They've been fighting for years over where the song was written, and uh, we'll we'll, we'll not sully our hands by getting in the middle of that. uh, (laughs) uh, But but still, he's writing this song in The Sunshine. This is not a song about uh, the culture that he grew up in, and yet he managed to get right at something that just resonated across America and and, uh, across people of all religions.
0: Well, one of the reasons that it resonates so easily, I think, is because it doesn't have a lot of words talking about the various details of Christmas and the tree and the this and the that and the other thing. He says, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, and just lets the listener proceed with wherever that thought, will take them. You have to tell them about Mrs. Irving Berlin. <laughs> One of the stories I do kind of like is that it's said that when Irving was telling his wife about this thing and she heard it the first time and the the verse which practically nobody sings anymore, uh, the sun is shining, the grass is green, the orange and palm trees sway, there's never been such a day in Beverly Hills, LA. And she said, Irving, That doesn't make any sense. Beverly Hills is Beverly Hills. Los Angeles is Los Angeles. And he apparently said, it fits, it rhymes, it stays.
1: (laughs) Maybe that's one of the reasons (laughs) so few people ever actually sing that verse. (laughs) You know, talking about the emotion of the song, Crosby's uh, nephew, Howard, said that uh, his uncle told him the toughest thing he ever had to do was Sing White Christmas. In 1944, he sang it on a U.S.O. tour in northern France to 100,000 GIs mm. who were breaking down in tears listening to this, and yeah. Crosby said that it was all he could do to keep from breaking down himself.
0: Yeah. I have read that, and I, I can just imagine how true that must have been. It, it resonates with everything I know about the song and the period. But why does it hold up? So we've talked
1: and maybe we'll finish talking about White Christmas with this. We've talked about the impact it had, the nostalgia because of the war and all of that, completely understandable. Also, how easy it is to get a hold of, how easy it is to sing compared to other songs for for most people. But the war long over this song and Crosby's
0: recording of it have never gone away. That is certainly true. Uh, I think for a lot of people, I think for a lot of people middle-aged and older, let's say, it goes back to their childhoods and it's still a, it's still a gorgeous piece of music writing and it's easy to interpret as a as a new singer comes along a new arranger comes along there's a lot to work with i think that's that's one reason standards hold up there there's a lot to work with there's quality material there and they allow the next generation of performers to interpret the material again
7: and anew. I think a lot of it, the sentiment, I think, is something that's, that's sort of timeless that way, um, is that we all can look back nostalgically on something or some period. Who, listening, might not have a son or daughter in Afghanistan or something? That this kind of evokes those same feelings that way, you know, uh, uh, not quite forgotten time it's maybe a simpler time, too. And I think that's with so many popular songs that, that remain popular, there's a there's a timeless quality about it, not just in the music but in the sentiment, I think and, and I think Irving kind of captured a feeling that's, that's really timeless
1: We're joined by music librarians Raymond White and Laura Schissel from the Library of Congress and we've been talking about White Christmas There's another song from that same time period though, we want to talk about and we'll do that coming up You're listening to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network I Welcome back to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We're talking Christmas songs with music librarians from the Library of Congress, Raymond White and Loris Schissel. And last segment, we talked about White Christmas. And this segment, gentlemen, let's talk about another song of the season, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas.
7: Uh, what can you tell me about this song, Loris? Well, this song comes from about the same time period as White Christmas. It was right smack dab in the middle of World War II. The film came out uh, meet me in st louis and uh that was the film that featured this song among others by the composer and lyricist of this song whose name was hugh martin those who have seen this this great film remember that uh you know judy and her family are living in st louis they go through the world's fair and all that sort of thing and then pop gets a job in new york and the whole family is going to move off to new york so it was up to hugh at that point to uh to read through the script and to come up with spots where he might insert a song. So he thought, well, here's a a poignant spot. I'll write a, it's Christmas Eve and they're getting ready to move and everything's falling apart. I'll write a really sad tearjerker here. So he wrote Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Now most of us know the, the, the version that Judy Garland sang and Judy Garland owned for the rest of her career.
8: Have yourself a
11: merry little Christmas.
7: Let your heart be light. Um, but the original Next version year, was Have yourself a Merry Little Christmas. It may be your last. Next year we may all be living in the past. Have yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Pop that champagne cork. Next year we all may be living in New York. No Good Times Like the Olden Times, and on and on. So when Hugh sang this and played it for Judy and and, uh, Vincent Minnelli and some of the other cast members there, Judy said, I'm not going to sing that song to this little girl in this film. She'll start bawling and so will the audience. It's it's entirely too sad. You can't have a song like that. And Hugh, who in uh, interviews... Later on, oh, he said he said, well, I was a young composer and kind of cocky, and I thought, well, if you don't like it, well, Judy, I'll just write you a new song. So he threw it in the trash. Tom Drake, who was one of the co-stars in this film, uh, saw Hugh a few days later, and he says, you know, that song was really nice. If you just tone down the, uh, the depression aspects of it and uh, cheer it up a little bit, I think you'll have a real hit on your hands. And so Hugh thought it over and went over to his studio and pulled the, the manuscript out of the trash can, and uh, came up with the words that, that Judy sang in the film. And it's really one of those truly, not only as a Christmas song, but if you think of of Judy Garland, you, you just can't imagine anyone else really singing. It's like uh, Over the Rainbow. She owned that song for the rest of her career then.
1: If you look at the credits for the song, Mm -hmm. we've been talking about Hugh Martin, but it says Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine. But that is a source of some controversy because Hugh Martin, even though Ralph Blaine ended up also on the Songwriters Hall of Fame, Hugh Martin says on this song and on many other co-credited songs, Ralph Blaine didn't write a note or a word.
7: Yeah, and that was, uh, Hugh often said, we have Hugh's papers at the Library of Congress, and, uh, you know, they worked together for years. Hugh said, I was a young composer and a not very good businessman, but they, they each worked on their own individual songs for a, for a show or a movie that way. Um, but then they combined the credits. But as time went on, Hugh started seeing all the royalties that were going to, to Ralph instead of him. And he thought, boy, I was a bad businessman to come up with that. So <laughs> One
1: of the interesting things about Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas is that it does give itself to irony. So even though he jollied it up for Judy Garland mm-hmm. and then jollied it up again for Frank Sinatra and later gave it a more religious tone.
7: Yeah.
1: Of famously, when director Carl Foreman did the anti-war film The Victors, yeah. he used Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas as, as the background during the execution of, of a soldier, uh, of a GI des- deserter. And uh, there was quite a bit of controversy yeah. about doing that at the time
7: again, shows the power that music has to evoke feelings, whether it's a positive or a negative that way. But, it, you know, we have music to say things that, that simple words can't describe or feelings that simple words can't describe. So we we take our own words and add music to it, and it, it, it takes it all to a to an entirely different level that way. And that's really what makes, it, I think, a, a, a great songwriter like Hugh Martin or an Irving Berlin or Jerome Kern, these people, really are able to to say things that we all feel, but they're able to say it in a way that it makes everything, these feelings, universal, that way.
0: Well, and I think the thing that this song does is it allows the listener to consider the song from wherever the listener finds themselves, Mm -hmm. whatever my life is like right now, and then the song says, have yourself a merry little Christmas. And depending on how good or bad your situation is, Right now, it either can evoke irony or encouragement or more good, more jollity.
1: And one of the things that we can do with all of these songs, whether it be White Christmas or Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, is when we sing it, make the song our own. And that's probably one of the many reasons they've lasted. We've been joined by music librarians Raymond White and Laura Schissel from the Library of Congress. Gentlemen, thank you so much and have yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And you, you as well. You're listening to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. There have been a great many Christmas movies, but the major audience for them never really has a say in how they're made. On The Late Show, Stephen Colbert figured out how to fix that.
14: This time of year, I love watching Christmas movies. And, and I've noticed, this is one of the things, so many of them are aimed at kids, but they're all made by adults. And I thought it was time to find out what kids want in a Christmas movie. Now, in the past, I've worked with a group of very smart kids to come up with the hit movie idea Teenage War, also a TV show called Strangest Things, The Golden Mysteries. (laughs) So, this week I sat down with some of that same creative team to develop a new kid-approved Christmas movie. This is Kids Pitch. Hi, everybody. Hi. You guys ready to make the greatest holiday movie of all time? Yeah! All right, okay. Does anyone have a favorite Christmas movie?
12: I think this movie is a Christmas movie. It's, it's a really, it's a pretty old movie. It's, it's very, very famous. Uh, Home Alone.
14: Home Alone. Oh, what would you do if you were left behind by your family that had just flown to Europe? And you had to defend yourself in your house alone against two robbers, one of whom is Joe Pesci.
12: I I just grabbed my dad's axe and you know what?
14: He grabbed your dad's axe and I know what?
12: He would do this. Tyler? I uh, I I would call the cops and then of course if the... If the cops um, couldn't make it and they they said have a 9-1 wonderful day, then then I would um, would do exactly what the kid from Home Alone did.
14: Oh, okay. Let's talk about our Christmas movie. You guys ready to make our Christmas movie? Yeah! Yeah! Is Santa in our movie? Yeah! Santa. Do Christmas movies have a villain? Yes, 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 yes. Who's the bad guy or girl in this movie, Antonio?
12: It's a whole army of elves.
14: Why would they be the bad guy?
12: Maybe because, because Santa has, has been, has been uh, treating, treating the elves bad, and then the elves betrayed him.
14: Okay. Yes, Annabelle.
12: I have two quick ideas. You have two maybe ideas. Maybe Mrs. Claus could be the villain?
14: Okay. Mrs. Claus I mean, sided with the elves?
9: Well, maybe, but she could just be like, like kind of like, turned into a villain gradually because every Christmas Eve Santa Claus has to leave so then she turns sad and then gets mad so then she
8: that's
14: very interesting that's very interesting so Mrs. Claus the idea here is that Mrs. Claus gets uh, upset because on this most important night of the year Christmas Eve her husband's never around and she turns on him So what does Mrs. Claus say when she's so mad at her husband
9: She says, you're not treating me well. You're not giving me all this stuff, all this. You're not.
14: Yeah, you're not treating me well.
9: You're not treating me well. I am leaving you. I have another idea. Maybe it could be Santa Claus is born with a twin. That's very interesting. And that evil Santa is like telling people, I'll give you presents if you do bad things. Instead of being on the good list, you have to be on the bad list to get presents.
14: Will anybody here admit to being naughty this year? Yes, Tyler.
12: I hit my mom with cash.
14: You hit your mom with cash? You threw you threw money at your mother?
12: Yeah. What, what, why? Why did
14: you hit your mom with cash?
12: I don't know. I had seven dollars. I just wanted to give her the seven dollars smackdown.
14: Why seven dollars?
12: I don't know. It was just it's just, it just all I had.
14: Hold on a second. Uh, yes, Noble.
12: Um, I spent over. $1,000
14: on my mom's phone just for one game. You spent $1,000 on your mom's phone for one game?
12: I just paid full price over 120 a Yeah. Oh. Fortnite. Oh. Well, oh, my God. God. No, you
14: spent a th- over $1,000 on Fortnite. Did your mom get mad?
12: Yeah. All she did was just wait, yell at wait, me wait, for about five hours.
14: $1,000, five hours of yelling. <laughs> Worth it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what if bad Santa and his bad elves are marching against good Santa and his good elves and Mrs. Claus sides with bad Santa because she doesn't know it's bad Santa because it's oh. a twin brother who says, I'll stay home with you at Christmas time. Are we liking this, Annabelle? Yeah. We're like it. Okay, wait, let's let's there. Let's, let's move on. Let's add some more elements to it. Okay, raise your arm if you think that there is a talking snowman. One, two, three, four, five, six. It's six to three talking snowman. Yes, Annabelle?
9: Well, I was thinking the bad evil twin, Santa, tries to go up against. Like the good Santa who's trying to give presents to good people.
14: Oh my gosh! Hold on, let me write this down.
9: Good Santa is too old to fight his um brother. He's outnumbered. He, he
14: he's outnumbered.
9: He's, yeah, he's he's too old, and his other brother is little, and his twin twins. brother is a li- little younger than him. For
14: like five minutes. Yeah.
9: yeah, five minutes, and he's been, and his other brother has been like training. Fighting.
14: What's his discipline? Is it is it is it kung fu? Is it jujitsu? Is it karate? Is it Wing Chun? Are we talking kapuira makulele? What is his martial art that he knows? Fu. Kung fu. Kung fu. So there's Santa. His name is say Chris Kringle. What is bad Santa's real name?
12: Man, maybe it's Santa's name backwards. <laughs> Naz. <At-nas. laughs>
14: Oh, oh, no. He
4: has
12: to have an evil laugh when he says. Does it. he have an evil
4: laugh?
9: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> how does the
14: movie, how does the movie. Is that wait Tyler. I gotta ask Tyler. Tyler, are the evil laughs freaking you out?
12: Well, well, I mean, it's fine. I'm okay with them. They're pretty loud. But I like loudness.
14: Do you like this movie so far, Tyler?
12: Yeah, it seems like a good movie. I will watch
14: it. You would watch this movie? Mm-hmm. That's great. So, bad Santa knows Kung Fu. Ahtnaz knows Kung Fu, defeats Santa. Santa goes off to the South Pole and learns Kung Fu from?
9: Bruce Lee. Just, yeah, I yeah.
14: wish we could hire Bruce Lee, but unfortunately, Bruce Lee is no longer with us. Bruce Lee died, I'm sorry. What? Am I the one, or am I the first one to tell you this? He died? Yes, Bruce Lee died, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, it was a hit job by the uh, by the monks of the Quivering Palm. Let's pause here for a second because we've come to a critical moment in our story. We still haven't figured out who, okay, we'll figure out who the trainer is. The
9: trainers, snowman!
14: Yeah. The snowman teaches uh, Santa how yeah, to but fight. Then,
9: like, the the snowman trainer has a secret.
14: The snowman trainer has a secret.
9: That he's on the bad Santa's side. Yeah. And then, yeah, the ba- and then, and then the snowman turns around on the bad Santa and actually really helps.
14: Okay, so the snowman at some point in the past has been on Atnaz's side, but he flips to help good Santa? Yeah. Do we like it? Yeah! Me too. What's the name of the movie? Yes, Annabelle?
9: Saving the Holiday?
14: Saving the Holiday, Molly?
9: Santa Fight.
14: Santa Fight, Saving the Holiday from Atnaz. At-Naz. Yeah. So what movie are we going to make, guys?
9: Santa Fight, Saving the Holiday from Atnaz.
14: We got a hit. We got a hit. Yeah! Now,
12: folks,
14: I know what you're all thinking. You're thinking, Stephen, that movie sounds great. When does it come out? I don't know.
1: But what we can share with you is what the coming attractions would sound like, and we'll do that coming up. This is the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Holiday Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. In our last segment, Stephen Colbert on The Late Show asked a group of kids what they think would make a perfect Christmas movie. And they had everything from good and evil identical twin Santas to a grumpy Mrs. Claus to Bruce Lee training Santa in martial arts. Though the kids were bummed to hear Bruce Lee was no longer on the planet. What kind of movie would this be? Here's the teaser trailer Stephen put together. And
7: my list is close enough. All right, time to spread some Christmas cheer.
2: Excuse me. Where do you think you're going?
1: Well, it's Christmas Eve. I have to deliver all the presents.
11: Another one of your work trips? On Christmas?
3: You knew all about my job when we got married, Karen.
2: You're not treating me well? You're not giving me all the stuff?
14: This year, Merry Christmas, not so fast,
7: Santa, becomes Scary Christmas. Atmas. That's right, brother, it is me. Now hand over the presents and the naughty
3: list. This year, the bad kids are getting all the good stuff.
11: (laughs) Why does he have to deliver presents on Christmas?
9: You think he treats you bad? He has us making toys all year, and he takes all the credit! It makes me so mad! he comes in here. I'm gonna go get my dad's accent. You know
8: what?
1: Seasons deceivings.
9: Honey,
7: I'm home. And I'm definitely Santa.
8: <laughs> Santa?
11: You came back early to be with me on Christmas?
7: Yes.
9: And like I always say, home, Ho, 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 ho.
2: ho.
14: Huh? A snowman with a plan. Santa Claus, I've been waiting for this day.
4: Oh, train me.
14: (laughs) I'm ashamed to admit it, but I once trained your greatest
7: living rival. Bruce Lee? No, Bruce Lee is dead. What? Stop right there, brother. You messed with the wrong Santa. Ha! You'll never beat me, old man. Old man? We're twins. I'm like five minutes older than you. Yes.
13: But I know Kung Fu. Well,
7: I just trained with the best. Bruce Lee? Oh, no, actually, Bruce Lee is dead.
1: What? Elves with axes.
9: It's an axe party! And you're invited to it, right? I'm done making toys. Yes! Chop, 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 chop! A chop ya!
14: It's Santa versus Atnas.
7: Prepare for the greatest martial arts move of all time
14: the $7 SmackDown! Yeah! Santa fight, saving the holiday from Atnos. Have a 9 1 wonderful day. Coming this Christmas. By
1: the way, that was Brian Cranston playing both Santa and Atnaz. Laura Linney as Mrs. Claus, Nick Kroll as the snowman, and Rachel Dratch and John Oliver as the elves. This is the holiday special from the CBS Audio Network.
14: Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.